Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to talk about an episode that took place 30, 40 years ago, two generations ago, where the Federal Reserve had an opportunity to see the forest for the trees, but they instead focused on the trees. Jeff, we're going to be talking about something called the Drysdale problem, the Drysdale affair. And for people that have been around forever, old, old, old people that remember that, they will know what we're talking about. But for young people such as myself, they will say, I've never heard of that, but it sounds like the LTCM problem, right, Jeff? Long-term capital management, 1998. And then, of course, there's a lot of people watching the show right now who are also shaking their heads and saying, I, I've not heard of that either, which makes me deep into my early 40s. Jeff, we're going to be going over an article that's titled, Since When Does the Fed Funds Rate Have Anything to Do With Anything? It's at Real Clear Markets. It was posted on the 15th of July, 2022. The punchline is going to be Chairman Volcker. But first, we're going to go over this Drysdale problem, the long-term capital management before long-term capital management, and how the Fed had an opportunity to see this repo collateral chain. And they said, well, why don't we look at that thing over there somewhere? All right. Tell it. Go. You, you take over. May 20, 1982, an emergency conference call with the FOMC. Why? Because Wall Street was pissed, to put it mildly. They were concerned that this Drysdale affair was going to, I think one of the quotes was, blow a hole in somebody, which meant the, really the repo market, but the Fed took it as some individual banks. What really happened specifically was this company called Drysdale Financial Security, which was no large firm, is basically a mid-level, mid-tier broker uh, running a matchbook strategy, which meant that sometimes they were short bonds, sometimes they were long bonds, treasuries mostly, uh, which meant if you're long and short treasuries, you got to be able to borrow them from somewhere. And their primary broker was Chase Manhattan Bank. So they had a relationship where they could borrow treasuries from Chase Manhattan Bank. Only Drysdale um, got themselves into a bit of trouble. They, their strategy went awry for various reasons that really don't matter at this point. The details really, we don't care about them. Essentially, what happened was around May 15th of 1982, the U.S. government was going to pay coupons on all these long positions in treasuries or all the treasury that Drysdale reported as, as holding in their possession. And Drysdale informed Chase that they were going to keep the coupons for their own purposes. There's a little nuanced point there, Jeff. Tell the audience that the government would pay whoever held the securities but, primitive times, much and, and, more primitive times. And we, well, I'm so, I'm a caveman myself. I just assume, yeah, well, the person that owns it, the entity that owns it, owns them. I'm so behind the times, even though I've been doing this show for two years. But of course, that's not how it works. Collateral chains, repurchase agreements. So just because you hold it doesn't mean you own it. But back then, the government would pay right. Drysdale government securities. They held it. And what was Drysdale supposed to do? Well, Drysdale would get the accrued interest on whatever long positions they had, but they were supposed to pass on the majority of those interest payments to the actual owners because the actual owners still actually own the securities. And if you actually own the securities, what you're actually owning is those interest payments along with the rights to be paid in principle at maturity. 
So Drysdale was getting paid the interest. And because Drysdale had run into trouble, they said, we're keeping all this interest to try to fill in this massive hole, which meant that there were bond owners, actual treasury owners down the line who were waiting. Hey, where's the coupons? We're supposed to get paid coupons. Where are they, Chase? That Well, maybe the audience hasn't caught that. Drysdale either called or received a call from Chase saying, where's my $270 million? And Drysdale says, well, we're not going to pay it. And so we're thinking Chase is the owner. No, Jeff. No, they're not the owners either. So Drysdale calls Chase and says, hey, this $270 million, which $270 million back in 1982 was a huge amount. This $270 million that we just got from the government, we're, we're holding on to it. And Chase was panicking, not just because that was $270 million that they were missing in interest, was it because those treasury bonds that they had lent to Drysdale weren't Chase's either. They, in fact, belonged to a group of about 30 dealer, broker dealers of various sizes and sophistications uh, down the road. And who knows if those 30 broker dealers, if the treasuries actually belong to them too. But either way, Drysdale's phone call to Chase kicked off this storm of events where Chase then had to call all these bond owners and tell them, these safe investments that you thought were really safe, well, we've, re- we've borrowed them from you. And without your knowledge or without your consent, well, I'm assuming there's some kind of legal consent somewhere, but without your knowledge, we've relent them to these other people called Drysdale who have just screwed up badly and they're no longer going to pay the interest. And of course, these 30 broker dealers say, well, that's not our problem, <laughs> right. Mr. Chase. You took our bonds, so we're holding you responsible for the interest payments and sort of led to this, on, try to untangle this ball of repo and reuse and all sorts of other things to figure out who really was on the hook for these interest payments, given that they had been relent and reused at least twice. At least twice. Who is really responsible for all this? Here's a quote from the Washington Post. I love it. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you a central banker? Do you celebrate monetary accomplishments before they occur? Do you struggle incredibly promising to be irrational? Then the new Clench 5000 from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you. Yes, simply place this refashioned stainless steel mousetrap in your trousers or pencil skirt for your next press conference. Nary a hair will move on your head, nor an eyebrow raise in confidence. Nary a smile will cross your face before the policy transmits successfully through the economy. Rest easy that your days of premature celebration are over with the knowledge that the Clench 5000 is hair trigger sensitive. The Clench 5000, new from Eurodollar Enterprises. The brokers, let's say 30 of them, say Chase is responsible for making good on the $106 million, And you let us know that it was on $270, later clarified. So they're responsible for making good on the $270 million they are due. They say they lent the government bonds and notes to Chase, not Drysdale. Chase, they say, without their knowledge, relent the securities to Drysdale. And this is what the FOMC emergency meeting should have focused on, right, Jeff? But, but they didn't. The securities relending, the rehypothecation, the collateral, their focus was so narrow, Jeff. What was their eventual focus on? They were focused on sorting out the interest payment. Period. Who owed what? And maybe we should streamline the process of interest paying. 
rather than looking at all this relending and reusing and why it's happening, Volcker and the Fed simply looked at Drysdale Affair as an inconvenience of lack of lack of uh, of uh, modern bookkeeping, modern accounting, rather than. You know, like I said, the quote before from a contemporary quote was this was going to blow a hole in somebody. The Fed looked at it as, OK, somebody's going to lose some money on an interest payment, probably Chase, because Chase is going to have to come through. And Chase did. Why did Chase eventually pay that interest out of the goodness of their heart? No, because Chase realized, unlike the Fed, that there were systemic implications here of the breakdown in these reuse chains, right? If I was worried about lending my securities to Chase or somebody else, and I'm not going to get paid interest, the issue isn't the interest. The issue is I'm not going to relend my securities anymore. And if I'm not going to relend my securities anymore, and Emil, you're not going to relend your securities anymore, the entire repo market begins to break down. That was what was, should have been the focus of everybody. Instead, it was, how do we get the government to pay the actual owner of, of the interest payment? Why did instead, you know, the, that's the question. I mean, that's the question that nobody ever wants to ask. Why are we reusing and re repledging all of these assets so many times? What is really going on in these securities markets, especially the repo market? And why is it such a big deal? I would circle that point if we weren't on a podcast and a YouTube show, Jeff. What you just said, why did Chase decide to pay? The goodness of their heart, no, or no, because of the systemic implications, Jeff. You mentioned here that the May 1982 conference call voted to increase the open market desk's authority by tenfold, reassuring the entire repo market, officials believed. So they did their job as far as they're concerned. They increased the liquidity available. Chase paid it. Case closed. You don't have to worry. Right. But you didn't, there was no further investigation, interest, that collateral chain. Amazing. There was no appreciation for the fact that this had become such an important structural element in the monetary system, that it was the overriding thing. And as we talked about, you know, you talk about LTCM, but before that, remember Solomon Brothers, the 1990-91 episode where Solomon Brothers was cheating on auctions mm -hmm. because they wanted to corner the market on on-the-run treasuries. There's a direct line from Drysdale to Solomon Brothers to LTCM, and then eventually subprime mortgages in 2007. So why didn't they ask these questions in 1980? Why didn't they say, especially at 1982, I'm sorry, why didn't they say in 1982, hey, we're having all this trouble defining money. The famous quote from the, the, the quote that we dug up from the, uh, our part two of our Volcker myth series, where they said, you know, we'll never find the transactional balance again like M1 because we just can't do that. So why didn't they use this opportunity, the Drysdale affair, to really look, to dig into some of this repo stuff because they knew repo was acting as a its own form of money. They knew that. They talked about that all the time. And yet they didn't take advantage of the opportunity to investigate, to appreciate, to learn, to measure, to control, to regulate all of these other things that we associate with an actual central bank. They abandoned their uh, their commitment. They abandoned their duty and their and their obligations to be stewards over the monetary system when here was the perfect time for them to actually take the reins and do something about it. It was systemic, Jeff. You remember in the Solomon Brothers example, it wasn't just Solomon Brothers. Right now we look back oh, on it yeah, because of Michael Lewis <laughs> and we say, oh, of course, right. it was a bunch of bad eggs. What was it? Liar's Poker was the book. So Solomon Brothers, big deal. No. What did the government report say? Was it 
38 out of 40 or 88. I just can't remember. But basically, I think it was 90 some odd. I mean, it was sort of it was a resounding number. Everyone was doing was what doing. Solomon yes. Brothers was doing, which is what we're talking about. And it wasn't just treasuries, right? It was it was on mortgage bonds. They were cheating government sponsored entities, the GSEs. They were two cheating sets on GSEs, keeping two sets of books. Yeah. Literally. Why? Collateral, collateral, collateral. Every time these things came up, the government, the Fed, the uh, the uh, Office of the Control of the Currency, all of the people in the government agencies we associate with regulating money and banks, they just turned a blind eye. A lot of it was because they didn't really understand what they were seeing. They have this conception of banking and money that was just completely outdated. And the sad fact is they knew it was outdated. That's really what the Volcker myth is about. In 1979, okay. 80, 81, 82, they struggled to get a monetary framework for what was happening with the great inflation. And the spoiler alert is they never succeeded despite all of these opportunities presented to them. Okay, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to do a very dangerous stunt. I'm going to ask you to somehow segue from this fascinating Drysdale story to Volcker. I know it was happening at the round, I mean, it was the exact same time, but what is the Volcker myth have anything to do with this whole Drysdale missing interest payments, ignore the collateral chain story? Well, let's think back to May of 1982, May, June, July of 1982. This is in the midst of what at the time was the worst economic contraction since the Great Depression, and it would be until 2007, 2008, 2009. So the Fed right here is in a world of trouble. The economy is falling apart. The unemployment rates double digits for the first time since the 30s. And now all of a sudden you have banking mess show up. And a banking mess in, that's not really familiar. It's not textbook. We've got this Drysdale affair. We've got it actually spilled over into something called Comark and other places. So you're the Fed. The economy's a mess. All of a sudden we're worried about banks and you think, oh, crap, deflation. So before then, the Fed had been pretending to be a tightening agent. They had been restricting bank reserves, which we talked about in the first two parts of the Volcker myth, that it didn't really have any effect. But the Fed was sort of like down to its last option. So they thought, we got to stick to this tightening, restricting bank reserves at all costs. Otherwise, what else are we going to do? So in May in 1982, they began to think that we might have to stop this restricting bank reserves thing because maybe the system itself has gone too far in the other direction. We're presented with some serious challenges. And the Drysdale affair was sort of maybe one too many, the straw that broke their back, which said, okay, this emergency conference call, we've already done securities lending, but maybe we need to consider about adding reserves back to the system, not because it'll do much, but because it might send a signal to the market that we've shifted from being tight to accommodative, and maybe that'll help some way because we're in real serious trouble here. And so this is around the time when the Volcker said, the Volcker people said, we're getting out of our quote unquote tightening regime and starting to move into a different type, into a different stance. And that different stance wasn't printing money. It was essentially saying, well, we're not going to let the Fed funds rate rise above 10 or 15%, excuse me, or we're not going to let it fall between or below 10%. So for the first time in public, they began to sort of target a range for the federal funds rate that was somewhat less than the market was anticipating. So from a certain perspective, a perspective that would be developed and overhyped over the years, 
it looked as if the Fed was changing its its monetary policy into an interest into a accommodative interest rate target regime. Fascinating. Okay, so an important change in the history of monetary policy. Jeff, I'm going to read a quote out, and I want you to tell the audience if this is a quote by Jeff Snyder or Alan Greenspan. Quote, increasingly since 1982, we have been setting the funds rate directly in response to a wide variety of factors and forecasts. We recognize that in fixing the short-term rate, we lose much of the information on the balance of money supply and demand that changing market rates afford. But for the moment, we see no alternative. In the current state of our knowledge, money demand has become too difficult to predict. Incredible, Jeff. So they're saying, tell me if I got it right. You, just before I read that quote, you said it. Now here's Greenspan saying it. Tell me if I got it right, Jeff. They went from, we're trying to manage money supply and demand. I always say money supply. We're always trying to, we're trying to manage money supply like a central bank, okay, bank reserves. And now we're giving up with that. It's just not working. We're going to do rates. Is that right? Is that- yeah. And it's even worse than that because as Greenspan was admitting since 1982, since this episode we're talking about, Drysdale and everything else, what they're saying is they don't move the federal funds rate around based on what's happening in the monetary system. Mm-hmm. They've tried to correlate changes in the federal funds target with economic aggregates like inflation or the unemployment rate or GDP. They're completely abandoning their role as a monetary agent, as the monetary agent, because as Greenspan says, we cannot predict monetary demand, demand for money. And the reason they couldn't predict demand for money was Drysdale. Money was different. The demand for repo, for example, was something they didn't track. They didn't take account of. When they talked about money demand and targets for money demand and predicting money demand, you know, Stephen Goldfeld's famous 1976 paper, The Case of the Missing Money, what they were talking about was transaction demand, M1, or at most depository money demand, M2. But if you have a system that is increasingly depending upon other forms of money like repo, or we haven't even talked about euro dollars and outside the US yet, if there is demand for money that isn't in M1 or M2, what are you going to do? Well, Alan Greenspan told you what they did. They abandoned money altogether and simply piggybacked on Volcker's idea of targeting a federal funds range, which eventually became a single federal funds target, and hoping, just fingers crossed, that somehow, some way, picking the right target for federal funds will lead to all of these beneficial, predictable economic outcomes, you know, a low inflation rate. A, a, high, a low unemployment rate, a high rate of GDP expansion. And it's all just crap. It's all just, it's all just a lie. It's all a myth. The bad news or good news. The bad news for us, I don't know. It's hard to say. The bad news is they stumbled into, they fell ass backwards into a bit of luck. The end of the Latin American African debt crisis, the, what were the bonds? The Brady bonds. Brady bonds eventually, yeah. The fall of the Soviet Union, the beginning of the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, what else happened? The China entering the China, WTO, yep. the mathematics of finance, all of it contributed to the great moderation. And it seemed like they were doing a good job. Everything was, the wind was at their back, Jeff, until 1998. 2008. And here we are. 
I think that's that's the worst part about it is that when Greenspan was talking about and Greenspan did this several times through the to the 1990s where he said we don't do money. He actually admitted it in public, including the 1996 irrational exuberant speech. Everybody thought he said, you know, dot com bubble. What he said is we don't do money anymore. So we couldn't we can't tell you if the stock market is behaving rationally or irrationally. We have no clue. <laughs> but nobody ever heard what he was saying. And what he was actually saying was, you know, when Paul Volcker tried this experiment, we weren't really sure about it either. It wasn't until much later, around 1988 or so, that they settled on, hey, the, 19, the decade of the 1980s in America in particular has been really prosperous. That must have been us. Let's take credit for it. Let's just assume that moving around an irrelevant federal funds rate, it was not completely irrelevant, but it was in, in, in the grand scheme of monetary affairs, it wasn't really that important. So moving around a target for that rate somehow corresponded. Well, it did correlate because, you know, correlation isn't causation. But somehow they said, we must have caused this rapid expansion in American, rapid recovery and expansion in the American economy that seems to have spread around the rest of the world. We have no idea why that is. So why don't we take credit for it? Remember 2003, James, uh, James, what is it? James Watson, Mark Watson, James Stock. You know, Stock and Watson, um, the, uh, the who coined the term great moderation, said, we have no idea where this thing came from. And Ben Bernanke immediately said, we did that. It must have been us. Who else could it have been? As you said, Emil, it wasn't the Fed. It wasn't this ridiculous charade of moving the federal funds rate around or targeting it. It was the euro dollar system expanding. And so long as it did, prosperity reigned around the world. Because as soon as the euro dollar stopped expanding, as we just talked about with Steve and the tick data, you can see it clearly on every chart and every economic account that you can imagine. Suddenly, all that stuff just went away. It wasn't magic. It was all just myth. I had this vision of the report being presented, the Great Moderation Report. And there the authors are saying, we don't know what caused this Great Moderation. And there's Ben Bernanke. Remember, they said it was random good fortune, as if it was just luck. They said they said they identified the thing that that was missing was monetary panics, monetary deflation. Right. We're, geez, you know, we just went through this long period where we didn't have a monetary deflation or an outright monetary deflation. That seems to be the reason why we had this great moderation. And everybody at the Fed said, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> it's like it's so absurd. You know, they're just looking at a correlation and saying this must be the reason because we don't want to explore any other reasons. And that brings us back to Drysdale. Had they looked at Drysdale closer, they would have said, aha, maybe this repo expansion and the use of collateral, reuse and repledging and all these collateral chains, maybe that's the reason why we had a great moderation for as long as we did. Maybe we should have paid attention to Solomon Brothers because Solomon Brothers and everybody else, because what they're doing maybe could lead to trouble down the road at some point. Instead, they just said, snapping their fingers, moving the Fed funds rate around as if that was the reason why for those couple of decades, everything seemed to go well. Jeff, this essay comes from Real Clear Markets, where you post weekly. You also write a business column at Epic Times. That's E-P-O-C-H Times, ladies and gentlemen. Where else can they get your work, Jeff? They can go to marketsinsiderpro.com for some of the research material. And you can also buy a Eurodollar University membership where just last week, Emil and I recorded our first members exclusive video, which went into the deep, uh, deep look at the bank reserves and what was really going on 
during this Volcker myth period. Why was it that they were so the Federal Reserve was so confounded by confronting a banking system that had the ability to ignore signals from the Fed to do other things in other monetary classes that allowed them to essentially circumvent everything that Paul Volcker was trying to accomplish? Why was the Volcker myth really a myth? We we did a we did a breakdown of that in our uh, exclusive member video, which you can look, you can view, you can watch it at our membership site at eurodollar.university.